We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into what is a very special and timely and unique episode of The Scoop. We're here with Alex Gladstein. He's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. We're going to be diving into the intersection of human rights, technology, Bitcoin, blockchain technology, and examine what this nonprofit, which promotes the protection of human rights across the globe, uh, does and, and what they think about new and innovative technologies. Alex, thanks so much for joining us here in New York today on this snowy Monday morning post the holidays. I guess the best place to start would just be an overview of your role at the Human Rights Foundation, what you guys are working on right now, and how you got involved. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I started working at the Human Rights Foundation in 2007. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonprofit charity based right here in New York City, led by a group of international leaders from countries ranging from Russia to Lebanon to Venezuela to Hong Kong, who believe in promoting freedom and human rights for people who live under authoritarian governments. So our sort of tagline is like sort of we're promoting liberty and justice where they're most at risk. And the political science background for that is that In free societies, we as citizens have a lot of ways we can hold our governments accountable or push back on violations of our rights. We can sue our government. We can fund nonprofits. We can write op-eds in newspapers. We can be angry. We can make a living making fun of our leader, right? Um, That is only the case because we live in an open society that protects things like free expression. In authoritarian societies, which unfortunately constitute Uh, more than half the world, about 4 billion people live under some sort of authoritarian society. These abilities are very diminished and at times virtually non-existent. So, you know, generally speaking, if you look at countries like Venezuela, Turkey, Russia, China, North Korea, um, the levels of oppression range, but, you know, in none of these countries would creating like a Greenpeace or an Amnesty International or 
you know, like an ACLU type organization be possible. You'd be arrested immediately or your bank account would be shut down. You'd be thrown in prison. You'd be harassed at best, right? So our specialty is to like work with and help people who live under very difficult political environments. And throughout my whole career, I've been exposed to how powerful technology can be in these environments. My very first role was working with the Cuban underground library movement in an environment in a, in a communist country where books are illegal unless they've been approved by the regime. So we would like smuggle in uh, various texts, forbidden texts, films, things like that. And I, I thought it was so incredibly powerful, um, that kind of work. And that's why I ended up sticking with HRF. But we've always seen how, uh, you know, information is power. It's an interesting point you raise about someone who lives in a country who doesn't have the ability to exhibit these rights, to be politically active, to organize. And if they were to try, their bank account would be shut down. And that kind of brings in... Or they get the crap kicked out of them or, or worse. Or worse. I think that's where a lot of people like to tie in Bitcoin. A lot of crypto enthusiasts like to tie in Bitcoin when they think about human rights or political activism or oppressive regimes, this idea that it's a borderless form of transaction that you can use to circumvent that. But it's not so easy, right? It's not as easy as saying, well, I have this magic internet money and now I have more freedom. There's, there's probably a lot more to it. Well, I think if you look at the initial scientific creation of the internet and of email, it wasn't immediately apparent that this would be like a massive liberation tool. Uh, it was, uh, you know, whether you were messing around with like listservs or message boards or even early online commerce, the human maximum human potential impact was not sort of immediately known. I would say the same thing about um, Bitcoin. And I think it's only because of my background and of the people that I work with and the situations that I uh, see every day that I've started to realize the, the sort of wider impact that I think Bitcoin will have um, in a way that's sort of similar uh, to, to the internet, um, to uh, a technology that decentralized the means of production of information and access to information. Um, something that is going to decentralize the means of production of money and access to money, I think will be remarkably powerful, especially as we move into a more cashless future where all money will be electronic and we're going to be confronted with a situation where the money that we use every day has transformed and continues to transform away from bearer assets, which give privacy and individual sort of power to, uh, you know, controllable, surveillable digital assets, um, which seed or betray your power and your information to others. So this is like a massive social transformation the world's going through right now. And the human rights community, I think, is lagging a little behind in seeing how important money and currency uh, is to this. But at the end of the day, uh, I do believe that financial privacy is essential for a healthy democracy. And I guess the best example I would give to the, the listeners would be to consider what happened in Hong Kong this summer when you saw students and others protest uh, against this uh, you know, new extradition bill this summer in, in the millions and people would line up uh, to go into the underground, into the metro in Hong Kong. And instead of using their like ID-linked octopus card that they normally would use, uh, they didn't want to do that because that could betray their movements and locations and their employers could find out and they could get fired or worse, right? 
So they were lining up in these big queues to use cash to buy one-time use uh, top-up cards. And it struck me as a really powerful reminder uh, of, of the essential nature of cash in our ability to protest in an urban environment and hold our government accountable. But in 15, 20 years, there won't be paper or metal money in Hong Kong. So how will these people protest for their rights and hold their government accountable? So we need a digital version of cash. And that's what I very much believe is, 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 uh, has been given to us with Bitcoin. And, and I think people building in the Bitcoin ecosystem are, are contributing to that. Mm-hmm. But just as the internet wasn't a panacea to all the problems associated with authoritarian regimes and, and the like, nor will Bitcoin be one as well, um, so long as, especially so long as it's able to find its way into more nefarious corners of the market. Um, and if it's used by bad actors, it might impede the benefits that it promises. Sure. I, I think the way to look at it would be to look at a country like North Korea, actually, um, which has no access to outside information and see how horribly cruel and unjust and repressive it is. Necessarily, uh, a future North Korea, which would have open information, and independent journalism and free expression would be a better society. So I guess what I'm getting at is not necessarily that like, yeah, Bitcoin's certainly not a cure-all, but a society that has like open money, uh, which is accessible to anyone and is censorship resistant and affords us privacy, I think will necessarily be a better society than one where the control of money is centralized, uh, held by arbitrary power, and where it's able to be confiscatable and trackable um, by whether it's governments or corporations. I, I do very much believe it'll, it'll be a better society. Since you brought up North Korea, it's certainly worth diving into the recent news over the Thanksgiving holiday of the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice arresting an Ethereum research scientist for Virgil Griffith for mm-hmm. visiting North Korea. He allegedly, according to the DOJ's press statement, uh, provided information to the North Koreans via presentation that could be used to go around sanctions um, using Ethereum blockchain-related technologies uh, you mentioned before we turn the mics on that we shouldn't lionize him, but also we shouldn't necessarily jump to conclusions on how he should be punished. Uh, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I think it'd be interesting for the listeners for you to ex- explore that dichotomy. Sure. Why should he not be lionized? And then I think we can have two different conversations about the Griffith case. We can argue about should he be punished, should he be imprisoned, etc. I think there's a very good case to say that he shouldn't be, that he went and he shared information, which is, you know, not state secrets, et cetera, and he was providing education. Um, I think it would be a pretty bad precedent to set for people talking about projects in the cryptocurrency and blockchain industry uh, for them to be treated in this way if they go abroad to different countries. However, we need to really separate that from like the moral uh, side of it here and say quite clearly and unequivocally and have an understanding that the North Korean government is, is a very wicked, evil government that keeps hundreds of thousands of people in gulags and starves and murders and tortures, uh, millions of people over the last several decades and institutes a caste system where your 
family history dictates what kind of job you can have and who you can love and where you can live and where you can marry and where the government keeps the entire population completely cut off from outside information and where the elite keeps you know, all the resources for themselves at the expense of everyone else. I mean, this is really the bottom of the barrel when it comes to governance in the world today. We need to be able to unequivocally say that aiding or abetting this regime in any way is bad and, and, and you don't want to do that. I mean, it's like the least ironic for the character of this person, but this is the least cypherpunk thing you could possibly imagine would be to aid and abet the world's most vicious tyranny. Um, but that's what he went and did. So regardless of what we think or determine with regard to his punishment in the United States, I think we should be unequivocal about uh, that people who care about a free world with privacy and rights and freedoms should not be uh, training or providing education or expertise to regime officials in North Korea. I think my fellow podcaster and, and journalist, Laura Shin, put it so succinctly and, and masterly, North Korea is essentially a prison masquerading as a country. And she noted a lot of the Twitter activity coming to the defense of Virgil, noting that there is a difference between helping the people of Korea and helping the government, the argument being, well, possibly he was going out there to to spread information about blockchain that could then in turn help the people. But as Laura notes, the only way to help North Korean people is in secret. Any public activity between North Korea and a foreigner is with the dictatorship, not the everyday people. And I think that's a fact about the North Korean government that a lot of people, a lot of regular people without deep knowledge of the history might miss. Yeah, so like there are journalists, tourists, uh, food tourism, there's um, different kinds of junkets, uh, different kinds of invest, investor and entrepreneurial related junkets, uh, all kinds of Western and foreign groups coming into Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. Every movement they make inside, every conversation they have is monitored. Um, everything they do is watched. Everything is highly choreographed and orchestrated. Official groups have to go and tour uh, memorials to the grandfather of the current dictator, the father of the current dictator. They have to lay flowers at the feet of these monsters who murdered millions. Um, this, is, this is like part and parcel with the experience. So I would argue that that's probably not the best way to affect change in North Korea. Um, if you actually want to help the North Korean people, uh, you could explore doing things more along the lines of what we've determined is effective at the Human Rights Foundation, which is helping South Korean NGOs, which are led by North Korean refugees and defectors, send outside information back into North Korea and bring information from within North Korea out. So this is like a very, very effective thing. So I'll give you two examples. One is an organization named North Korea Strategy Center, uh, led by um, uh, a guy who wrote Aquarium's of Pyongyang, which is like the Gulag archipelago of North Korea. It's like the first account of surviving one of these concentration camps. And this man started a, a nonprofit when he got to South Korea uh, to try and send outside information back to the people he left behind. You know, he felt like that was a moral imperative. So HRF has been supporting NKSC for uh, years and years and years and, and, and their good work. And what they do is they basically uh, interview North Koreans who make it to South Korea. There's this very long, perilous journey you have to do once you escape North Korea into China and then make it down to a non-communist country like Thailand, perhaps. And then you get flown to South Korea, interrogated and trained about how to live a modern life. 
um, and then you're sort of released as a South Korean citizen. Um, and he takes these like sort of fresh arrivals and he and his colleagues interview them about what would be most effective to send in, what content, what movies, what, what, what you know, K-pop, what foreign films, what news would be most effective to send in right now. And then they load those things up on, on flash drives and SD cards and through a, net, a human network, they send it back into China. And then these things are bought and sold throughout the markets of North Korea and people learn about what's happening in the outside world and it's causing a dramatic, dramatic cultural shift. Now, that's how you can be like cypherpunk in this case, right? Like that's how you can actually undermine authority in the state and help the individual, not by fly, flying on a jet to Pyongyang and delivering a lecture to the operators of a massive gulag system. So what do you say to folks like Vitalik or what would you say to folks like Vitalik who are of the opinion that he didn't give any real help in doing anything bad? And this is quoting Vitalik. He delivered a presentation based on publicly available info about open source software. There was no weird hackery, advanced tutoring. Is this, is this just akin to being an apologist for a regime that's obviously doing evil things, not to ask a pointed question, but. Yeah, well, he, he made a statement and then I, I actually responded to him and I said sort of like something like, regardless of what you think about the punishment, can you please just unequivocally condemn what's happening in North Korea, just to clarify the situation? And he, he issued kind of a statement along those lines, which I was happy he did. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is like such a basic, uh, bare minimum situation here of, I mean, literally the United Nations has compared what's happening within North Korea today to what was happening within Nazi Germany at the end of the 1930s. So could you imagine someone going to Berlin in 1938 or 39 and delivering a technical, uh, you know, talk to the Nazis, uh, one that they may very well use in their social engineering experiments. Um, this is to me a total travesty and a betrayal of all of the like values that went into the creation of things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I can only chalk it up to ignorance, um, which isn't really a defense, but I can't imagine that all these people are, are happy and excited about supporting the North Korean government. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It's interesting. From my perspective, being a reporter and a journalist, I see the stories that are coming out from the mainstream press, and there are only a few instances in which you have companies like the Washington Post or the Wall Street, not so much the Wall Street Journal necessarily, but CBS or ABC putting out Bitcoin stories, whether it's a hack, a big hack, or something related to criminal activity. And now with this instance of Virgil's visit to North Korea, everyone is putting out reports on, on this. And so from my perspective, it seems like a horrible PR event, not, not for Ethereum, obviously. Most people associate all of the cryptocurrencies as being the same and Correct. as being the same as Bitcoin. In your seat, it's interesting because your organization is serving as an advocate to an extent for, for Bitcoin in a way that many others aren't. Do you view this as a few step backwards for the space? How can we get over this hump? Well, I've written about this before. I, I think that people, whether they're in the blockchain industry more generally, working on cryptocurrencies, 
working on Ethereum, working on Bitcoin. I think they need to consider the world that they are trying to build and what they want to see in five, 10 years. And they should take some like moral stances. So, you know, don't go build blockchain tech for the Saudis. Don't go build blockchain tech for Putin. Uh, don't go build blockchain tech or teach about blockchain tech to the North Koreans um, or the Chinese, or, you know, I mean, depending on your perspectives, any government, right? Um, you know, maybe don't go do that for uh, companies involved in the US prison system. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to take this, but you should be able to stand up and use your abilities. And whether you run a company or you run an organization, you should be able to take some stances uh, publicly that reflect the values that the, 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 that you're trying to push through with your technology. So if you actually care about privacy, user privacy, you care about um, anonymity, perhaps on the web, you care about being able to browse the internet safely and freely, you want to care about censorship resistance on the internet and, and, you know, maybe perhaps having that kind of parallel economy, whatever your values are that drew you to this space, here's an opportunity if you're a CEO or you run an exchange, et cetera, to make a statement about that and to not help like people who are human rights violators. This to me is like pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. This is part of an ongoing history. It's not just this, this one example of, of Virgil flying out to North Korea. We've seen tweets from various crypto advocates when it was announced that the Venezuelan government was launching a cryptocurrency tied to oil, that that was a bullish event for the market, which is just a jaw-dropping jaw conclusion to come to. Uh, you had mentioned before we turned on the mics that you had friends coming to you over a year ago about whether or not it would make sense mm -hmm. for them or be uh, morally right for them to visit North Korea in the same type of capacity as Virgil and you kind of had to walk them through that history but but let's uh yeah. let's let's go through that yeah, um, sure. this notion of the bitcoin market's connection to thinking that anything related to blockchain or bitcoin is good even if it's tied to uh authoritarian regime well we just we just went through this and i wrote a piece for bitcoin magazine uh, trying to separate these two issues but at the end of the day uh, bitcoin separates money from state and is not going to be good for any government I have the opinion that it'll be much worse for dictatorships and authoritarian regimes than for democracies, which are more flexible. Um, but generally speaking, no government is gonna want to see the popularization and spread of Bitcoin because it reduces their power to control the population. Um, even benign governments are not gonna wanna see it. In fact, some of the most, I would say, aggressive anti-Bitcoin governments are in Northern Europe where, where countries are relatively kind of free and open. This is very, very different from governments and their excitement around blockchain technology or what, whatever they call blockchain technology. So these kind of like centralized databases that governments are going to be loading uh, ID systems and new currencies onto, which are going to be eminently trackable, confiscatable, freezable, etc. And you're seeing this happen in China where, um, you know, you've seen three, four years go by where the Chinese government is obviously working on like, a, you know, this DCEP digital yuan project, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're trying to replace the M0, the base money in China, the paper money that's outside of the reserve with a digitally trackable version. They want to do that because they want to um, strengthen their control over the population. They don't want anyone to have paper or metal money because that's anonymous. They want to have total surveillance and sort of they want to have this financial panopticon in China. And that's what they're doing. 
And we have to be able to like intellectually separate that from what's happening with Bitcoin, where they will eventually crack down on Bitcoin and make it more difficult to, to obtain, I would imagine, if they're, if they're smart. And you should think of this the same way on the same spectrum as from Signal, if you're talking about, let's say, messaging, Signal would be like a very useful, very private, encrypted, uh, you know, very open source messaging system that I would encourage activists and journalists to use. You can go all the way to WeChat on the other side, right? They're all digital messenger services, but we have to understand that they're radically different technologies. So like I would put Bitcoin at the same end as like Signal and then say you could go all the way over to like what the Chinese are building with DCEP. Uh, it's going to be a digital currency. You know, whether, it's, whether you consider it on a blockchain or not, it's probably irrelevant. It may even be a cryptocurrency. Um, but we have to think about like what, what will it do to people and what will it enable people to do, right? So I think it's important to like really start to separate these things out and to talk about like, you know, what will be the effects of Bitcoin? How will Bitcoin react? And then, and then separate that from like what's going to happen with blockchain technology more generally. So I think more needs to be d discussed to separate these, these two phenomena. Do you think that something like what the Chinese are working on gives them more or less power than they do now when you think about their control over people's pocketbooks well, and wallets? Whether they can technically implement it the right ways to be seen, but clearly they want more power. I mean, why? that's the direction they're moving in. They finally have the algorithms and the sort of like, quote unquote, AI ability to start to sift through all this big data, right? So um, what I've, from what I've seen, from what, what the central bank, the PBOC of China has verbalized, one of the main annoyances with the current system in China as is, is that if Frank uses WeChat, and they want to get your data. They have to go to Tencent and like get your data. And like Tencent may put up a fight about that. Uh, Tencent is certainly like going to end up complying with what the Chinese government wants. Um, but they've certainly tried to like fight back on certain things, right? They're like, at the end of the day, they are a company. They're not like a, a straight up arm of the government. And um, this just like gets all that messiness out of the way for the Chinese government. This allows them to just have like a, if, if this DCEP thing works, it would allow them to have real-time surveillance of all the transactions without having to go through a company. So it would be really great for them and a total disaster for civil liberties. What do you view as being, as it pertains to blockchain, the greatest existential threat to human liberties? Is it that mass surveillance over how folks spend their money, how they're transacting, or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're the default trend of the world, again, is, is that we're moving from like our daily use of money uh, being with a bearer asset that gives us uh, privacy and freedom to uh, a world where all of our little interactions, whether they're on Visa or um, the latest touchless card or with you know, China WeChat, um, we are being like surveilled and at times even controlled. So that's like the direction we're going. And all of this like blockchain digital currency stuff is just gonna push us further in that direction. These are like surveillance stablecoin projects. Um, Bitcoin would be you know, a very different beast and it's like, it's why I'm a big Bitcoin advocate from the human rights perspective because I think it gives us uh, a different way of doing things. And look, I mean, over time, I don't know if you can say that the Chinese government developing a digital yuan is, is bullish or bearish for Bitcoin and its price. I tend to think these things are going to over time be orthogonal. 
Um, there may be times when it appears to correlate. There may be times when it appears not to. Um, I think Bitcoin's price will be driven by other factors. Um, but clearly, like, we're going to be living in a time where in the next five to ten years, many, if not all, governments will attempt to solidify their control uh, over the currency in their country through some sort of digital currency project. So one thing that you guys you guys worked on was the Open Money Initiative, which was part of a broader part of your broader look at the cryptocurrency landscape as it pertains to different human rights issues, going to Venezuela to gain insights into how the people there interact when it comes to their money transacting. What were some of the insights you, well, first let's speak a little bit about that initiative. What were some of the insights you've gleaned, you gleaned from it and how might that help different companies or organizations further tool people, equip people with what they need to be free from a money perspective? Sure. Yeah, so the Human Rights Foundation helped sponsor um, a project called the Open Money Initiative earlier this year where uh, a team of researchers went down to Colombia and interviewed uh, Venezuelan refugees to learn more about how they sent and received money with their families, how they earned money, uh, you know, what did they treat as their savings account, as their checkings account, as their checking account? Like, how did they denominate money? What what unit of account did they use? How did they get money from Colombia back to Venezuela to the United States, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, we learned a lot of insights uh, that I hope and I've seen have ha already had an impact, and I think will continue to have an impact on the industry. I'll give you one specific example. Um, in Venezuela, uh, one of the big peer-to-peer marketplaces that people use for uh, exchanging fiat money for Bitcoin and vice versa is, is local Bitcoins. And it's um, uh, very popular down there, uh, very dominant, uh, in, you know, as far as a peer-to-peer -peer exchange for cryptocurrency, it's, it's head and shoulders above the rest, right? And, and it does a huge amount of volume, um, more volume daily denominated in dollars than the Caracas Stock Exchange, right? So this is like a, a big, big deal down there. And what they realized is that, you know, most people at the, you know, earlier this year, um, you know, weren't really able to use phones to use local Bitcoins. They had to use computers. And there's a lot of trouble with that. Not everybody has a computer. There's power outages, et cetera, et cetera. So what we were able to understand was that it would be like a really important, I think both market um, and human impact opportunity for companies like local Bitcoins to work on their products for mobile phones in Venezuela that people would have. So not like an iPhone 10, um, but like an earlier Android edition, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of understanding has led to some very productive dialogues with companies like local Bitcoins to help develop mobile tools. So that would be like a really clear and obvious um, uh, example of the kind of impact we want to make with this kind of research. Um, also, just more generally, I think we want to have an impact on people's thinking when it comes to like aid and helping people under difficult economic circumstances. For example, today, like the World Bank won't like help. The World Bank can't get money inside Venezuela until there's a new government. They just, they can't because the Maduro government doesn't want that money coming in to the people, right? So the World Bank today could use Bitcoin privately. They won't because they don't want to rock the boat, but they could be like literally saving lots of people by funding Venezuelan NGOs. But they'd have to understand how those on-ramps work. 
or rather those on-ramps would have to be... They wouldn't have tailored. to do anything. All they'd have to do is convert fiat money in whatever country they're in into Bitcoin and send it to the addresses of the people running these, these soup kitchens. Um, people like Randy Brito with like BTC Ven. They'll receive your Bitcoin and then they'll, they'll use local marketplaces in Venezuela to turn it into Bolivars, buy the food for the people and feed them. I mean, this, would, this is something you can do right now. You can go support BTC Ven. And they have different projects, not just uh, sustenance and food, but they have, they're working on like a mesh networking project and a few other really interesting, important things. But I think the establishment in the world uh, won't get involved because they don't want to anger the Venezuelan government. And, you know, meanwhile, people suffer. It's just unfortunate. I'm not saying that this would make like a massive, massive, massive difference, but it certainly would help some people. And I think every human life matters, you know? So we could, we could meaningfully get a lot more resources into Venezuela today if major aid organizations would consider Bitcoin and, and sending it in Bitcoin, and they won't. And that will only be broken, that mindset will only be broken and changed through continuous education and engagement, which is why things like the Open Money Initiative are really important. To what degree has the Open Money Initiative broken that concept for well, organizations I mean, like the World Bank or larger entities that want to get money into Venezuela? That's a good question. I mean, some of the things that they've done are, are still private, um, but I can tell you that that uh, even just getting like an organization like IDEO, like this design firm, to get on board with sheltering and incubating their work was huge. I mean, and, and now like IDEO has shared that with many people um, involved in the design space, and we've had presentations recently uh, at organizations. I mean, in, I personally spoken at you know, some of the major exchanges like Coinbase about this work and gotten to talk to a lot of Coinbase employees, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I heard through the rumor mill that they were considering doing an airdrop. Yeah, no, I'm well. not sure about that, but last, uh, about a or year Or something ago, like that, but I think that could be a good example. About a year ago, Alejandro and I were interviewed. You can find it on YouTube. We were interviewed by Brian Armstrong about this particular initiative, um, which, was, which was great. And we got an opportunity to talk to a lot of the employees there. And there's been some follow-up. But uh, generally speaking, we've seen this project tapped into the non, let's say like the, when you talk about companies like IDEO and some of the other like VCs that were involved in the process, they were not like from the cryptocurrency industry. So I think it's really important to like show that things like Bitcoin are making an impact and can be useful tools to help people and to get out of the bubble of the cryptocurrency industry and to show like the mainstream that this can make a difference. That's like an imperative. Um, doing a piece in the next few 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 days or weeks about uh, looking ahead to 2020. And I think that there's like this um, kind of like this long, slow slog to like global Bitcoin understanding, where like today a very tiny fraction of humans understand like the potential. And it, it's just like watching the adoption is like slow motion, you know, even in places that could really benefit from it because it's not very usable the liquidity is not good it's a difficult user experience like the apps kind of suck etc cetera, etc cetera, right mm -hmm. um there's not a lot of education in different languages around the world so the adoption is happening super slowly but you know over time i think we can say like one of the most important things we can do right now um is is reach out and engage and educate people especially in the mainstream i mean if you look at like the skepticism that emanates from like and, and forget governments, let's assume that they'll never support Bitcoin, but like, like mainstream media organizations, like um, financial firms, et cetera. And you're starting to see some changes, but like, I mean, their skepticism will only become less 
and and more, and they'll only become more open-minded with more engagement and, and sure. more interaction. So I think that like trying to tell the story of Bitcoin to other audiences is is got to be like a, a top priority for people in the space. I think the Open Money Initiative provides a great example of how you guys are trying to promote education, trying to showcase how we can get money into difficult places um, through new mechanisms, through Bitcoin and cryptocurrency on-ramps. There are other aspects of what you guys are doing when it comes to Bitcoin, focusing on operational security, mm -hmm. empowering people using Bitcoin to, yeah. to have the proper uh, security in place, and also working on diversifying the network of Bitcoin core contributors. So there are two, those are two other prongs to the fork. Yeah, the, the operational security one is, is actually happening. Um, the diversification of core contributors is something we'd like to do. Um, maybe we'll get to it. Uh, it may also be best served by other organizations. But to, just to dive in on the, um, I, I think it's very important, obviously. Um, but. Uh, just to dive in on the operational security bit, at the Human Rights Foundation, we've been doing digital security training for activists for a long time. And look, I mean, there's no such thing as perfect privacy. People are always going to be vulnerable to like these like vast states with all their resources. However, there are things you can do. There are steps you can take to be lower, not the lowest hanging fruit. You know, you can kind of like make yourself just a little bit safer. Um, and it's a lifestyle choice with regard to digital digital communications, for example. Um, or the way that you use the internet. Um, there are certain steps you can take to be just a little safer, and we want to make sure activists know those things. When it comes to money, I think you're going to see the same sort of narrative where there's no such thing as perfect privacy. Even if you're using like one of these like privacy coins, like the moment you turn it into fiat money, you're going to betray certain things about you, et cetera. Um, so if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in a situation where your bank account just got closed or you're having trouble raising money or getting money to a particular geography, um, or maybe you're living behind sanctions that are that are unfair, um, or there's like some sort of bank controls, or uh, like, the government has like restricted your ability to withdraw your money from your bank account, which has happened in Lebanon recently and many other places, um, or whether you're just dealing with like hyperinflation or general instability. There are a lot of reasons that you might want to use Bitcoin. Now, how can you do it in the safest way possible? Um, is something we'd like to try and help with. We'd like like to try and design a, a course of sorts, or at least some some tips um, to help people if they have to, to do it as safely as possible. Um, and there's no guarantees here, of course. Just like with encrypted messaging, there's still vulnerabilities, whether it's on your phone itself um, or elsewhere. Um, but but there has to be some sort of like educational resource people can consume to help them be a little safer. So that's certainly a goal alongside of the research in difficult political environments and the public education pieces. I think those are the things that we want to focus on in, in 2020. It's interesting. I, you keep drawing uh, that comparison between what digital assets can do either for folks living in oppressive regimes or activists trying to change the status quo in oppressive regimes, drawing the comparison between Bitcoin and encrypted messaging or cryptocurrencies and encrypted messaging. What other technologies, aside from those two, can activists, uh, folks living in authoritarian regimes, leverage to change their their situation or the situation that many many folks are in? Um, aside from those two, what other technologies are you guys looking at? Well, I mean, 
And how would you enumerate? Sure. That? Like encrypted messaging is obviously the first one. So something like Signal, very, very important. Um, VPNs, obviously vital for people who live behind firewalls. So that would be like a second bucket. Um, and you could even go, depending on the, let's say, um, passion of the person involved in time into something like Tor, which would, which would be a really useful tool as well. Um, so those would be like the first two buckets. I would put uh, Bitcoin and other um, projects that focus on financial freedom and privacy in, in a third bucket. Um, ways that you can pay and do transactions and receive wires outside of the existing system or in some way that isn't connected meaningfully to your, to your ID stack. So that would be like a very important third bucket for these folks. Fourth area would be uh, access to the internet. So um, right now, generally speaking, you know, most people in the world don't have very many choices when it comes to how can they access the internet and that leads them to be victims of, for example, some governments like turn off the internet because they have total control over um, than that. They have like national telecoms that can just comply with their diktat, right? I think in the future, we're gonna move in this direction of like many different organizations and companies having satellite networks. We're, we're seeing this right now, right? With like, you know, whether it's uh, the ambitions of Virgin or Facebook or um, uh, SpaceX, et cetera, right? I, I think clearly most people would agree that probably in, in 10, 15 years, there's gonna be many different options for you to connect to the internet. And I, I think that's gonna be a wonderful thing. And I think we're also seeing the user side, like the piece of technology that receives and transmits satellite data getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, people have these like awesome little Raspberry Pis now that can send and receive Bitcoin from anywhere on earth using the Blockstream satellite, like without any regard to whether there's internet around, right? This is like amazingly cypherpunk, right? So I, I think that's, that's pretty neat. And that would be like a fourth, um, area for sure. Um, so I, th I think those are those are four areas that are feasible, feasible, reasonable areas to to start. And I think they can be both like areas for activists and journalists to learn up on and buff buff up on. They are also investment opportunities. So these are areas where like you may see hopefully people realize they can make a lot of money in, the, in, the, in these areas moving forward if they invest properly. Um, I'll just mention I mean, two, two, two other areas, I mean, that, that could conceivably fit into this area of uh, what I would call democracy technology or maybe dem tech or something like that. But um, we're not quite there yet, clearly, with, with the tech, but more sophisticated encryption of, like, data, of different kinds of data could be really cool. So, for example, I know you, you, you've seen the dreams of people, and there's actually implementation of this with Zcash, but, like, zero knowledge proofs disguising like different kinds of data and being able to prove certain things about what you have without showing the full thing could be really neat for users. For example, like if you wanted to participate and use Google Maps, but not like reveal to Google, like where, you know, your exact whereabouts all the time. Maybe you only want to reveal what you're doing on a daily basis or whatever, or you only want to reveal certain aspects of your medical profile and you want to keep the rest of it sovereign. I think that is something Microsoft's been looking at, right? The ION project, that's something that um, a lot of startups are looking at now, I think is very early. But I mean, if we're just gonna call that like, you know, you know, encryption of personal data, uh, that to me is, is very exciting. And then I think a final area would just be the continuation of free expression on, on the internet in terms of storytelling platforms. And I know social media platforms get a lot of heat, but looking just specifically at Twitter, I mean, without Twitter, 
a lot of the human rights activists I know wouldn't have a career. I mean, it really made them who they are in many ways. It gave them a voice, right? And I know we can argue about, well, how do they moderate content or how do they verify people? But I would say Twitter's done a really great job in terms of um, being a platform where people can express themselves in difficult areas. Uh, yes, could they improve? Definitely. Are they doing some things wrong? Sure. But generally speaking, I mean, you've got, I mean, short of North Korea, I mean, and, and arguably a few other places, I mean, you've got activists giving us really vital information from places in Iran, in Iran right Iran right now is an amazing time to have Twitter to be able to see what's happening inside. Same thing with Venezuela, Egypt, Turkey, many other places. So Russia. So I think that kind of storytelling platform, and it remains to be seen if like that stuff can be decentralized and if that's a good thing, I'm not sure. But I would certainly want to like pay attention to that area too. Well, there's so, certainly so a double-edged sword. I've just given you a bunch of different areas, and I think people can, can dive in, but that's the kind of stuff that we'd like to A, engage activists and journalists with in, in difficult environments, and B, see if we can get investors you know, to consider supporting the companies and projects in this area, both from a profit-minded point of view and from maybe like an educational, academic grant point of view, research point of view. Sure. I think now you did a great job enumerating the, the various technologies or technological forces that could aid in addressing some of these conflict or difficult preventing the global surveillance state if you want to put it more succinctly yes when we think about the broader problems facing just, just us, to, I, I just thought this was relevant i just gave a speech in australia recently you know they have a lot of sheep, sheep down there and i basically said don't be a sheep australia already has 100 million sheep you don't they don't need any more and I was like, here are four steps to not be a sheep. Uh, use Bitcoin, use Signal, don't use WeChat, and be very skeptical of these like new smart cities, okay? What's the difference between a smart city and a surveillance city? Not a lot. Um, until we can meaningfully make smart cities where we can like touchlessly move and go and do things without freaking revealing and betraying everything about us. Revealing um, that I identity stack. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think you can build a smart city in a way where I can beep into a subway line without revealing my address in iColor or whatever. Um, but we're not there yet because both like uh, public officials and companies have no incentive to protect user privacy, very little. Sure. Um, trends, what we're seeing with Apple is really interesting because even though I think there's some hypocrisy there, especially with regard to their operations in China, but it's amazing to watch them do these advertisements where they're like, promoting privacy. It's like very riveting, you know, clearly the most highly uh, invested in and produced ad ever about like why privacy is important. You know, this little one that you see on TV now, or, oh, your heart beats and these are your things. It's very effective. So I'm happy to see them doing that. And arguably, maybe they could be a privacy company given that most of the revenue comes from hardware. Sure. So we'll, we'll have to see. No, I think it's a great point. And it speaks to the question I was going to ask, um, giving, giving me that great analogy I can now ask it, if we have these technologies that we can use to not be a sheep, yes. so to speak, we, we have Bitcoin, we have VPNs, we have these other things that mm -hmm. we can leverage, where then, um, Alex, is are, are the wolves in sheep clothing mm. that may not be necessarily revealed to us at this time, maybe are just coming on the radar for folks like you at the HRF, but are nevertheless there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're, you're, again, we're going to repeat 
a lot of the same debates and narratives that we had with encrypted communications with encrypted money. Like it's, there's going to be a lot of repetition of a lot of went down um, and has and continues to, to go down in this area. So there are going to be governments, democratic and authoritarian alike, that try and outlaw encryption. They're going to also try and outlaw encrypted money, right? Um, there are going to be companies that governments hire to try and break encryption and to try and spy on you. This is obviously happening with chain analysis, right? Um, there are going to be efforts made to force, uh, whether it was email servers or now cryptocurrency exchanges, to do KYC AML and become surveillance tools. So this is what we need to guard against. I mean, if we want to avoid the mistakes that the original internet fell victim to, and now has largely, for most people who interact with it, become a way to track what you're doing, then we need to make sure that like the the exchange points where most people... Not well, a lot of it's about, out of their own hands, right? Well, like right, that's think, what I'm saying. If you think of things like FATF, right? Right, but like, there's different things we can do about that. I mean, like, here's the thing. You're always going to have your like, very intense pro-freedom person who's very like technical and can figure out a way to like safeguard their own stuff, right? If you think of PGP and Tor, et cetera. But like such a micro fraction of society actually uses that stuff, right? Um, so the goal would be to get like the major exchange things and points and services that the average person uses to not compromise too much of their, <laughs> of their data. And I, I, I will admit that that is probably only possible in a democracy. I don't think that's going down in China put it that way. But it could happen in America. I mean, we could fight for our rights in a way. And you know, maybe Coin Center can, can, can be helpful here, certainly, um, in convincing politicians and companies that like, they don't need to know everything about us. And that, hey, just you know, 20 years ago, everybody used, or whatever, 30 years ago, everybody used cash for everything. And that was fine. They didn't have to know everything about us. Can we keep that alive as an American value? And can we convince politicians um, and companies that it's OK for people to use digital cash? That's incumbent upon us. We have to do it in different ways. We have to do it by building the thing so that they can't you know, practically really fight it. But we also have to like, do it from a policy perspective. I think both are important. It has to be pushed, lobbied for, protested for, etc. cetera. Um, we've seen enormous changes in surveillance policy in the United States due to someone like Edward Snowden. I mean, I just listened to his interview on Joe Rogan, which was pretty interesting. Um, but I mean, and certainly nothing's perfect now, but the amount of more knowledge that the average American has about government surveillance programs, like pro, before, pro, before and after Snowden, it's like crazy, you know? So like now it's like a thing that we talk about. So it's not just building the tech. I think building the tech is probably the most important part. And like we need to do more in terms of um, contributing to core research. Um, I think what uh, Square is doing with Square Crypto is very interesting and like, and Clearly, like we'd like to see more mathematicians and scientists working on Bitcoin, making it more decentralized, private, scalable, etc. Um, but we also need to like do the heavy lifting in popular culture, which is I think something HRF can help with, and then also in DC, which is something what you know Coin Center is doing. I mean, I think we need to find the politicians that are most open-minded about this. There was a point right in the '90s where like we maybe maybe you know some of these technologies we take for granted today could have been made illegal. Like you know there was that moment where um, maybe we thought encryption would be illegal forever, right? And, and now it's like, fine that I use Signal. I don't go to prison for that. How can we make sure that happens with Bitcoin? That's really important. So I think there's like 
three areas we can work in. And if you're listening, you might be in any one of those areas. You might be in the technical area and you can build the stuff, right? You can make it more private and more decentralized and more accessible, more usable. You can be in the public education space. You can be someone like yourself, a journalist. You can spread the word about it and get it into more people's hands. And then maybe you're a lawyer or in regulation or in BD or whatever, and you can help make sure that our politicians understand this stuff is not not too much of a, of a threat. Do you think there's enough? Power. Do you think there's enough political will to engage with the issue of the surveillance state? When we look at on the campaign trail, we talk about automation a little bit. We certainly look. I think, don't engage yes. with. I don't some think of these we're there yet, topics. but I think privacy is going to become a huge issue for Americans. Well, we look at the, the vitriol around Facebook, exactly. right? On Capitol Hill during the Libra testimony. The just, reason why just, they were upset. We're just cracking the surface. Was here. privacy. I think it's going to get, and especially, unfortunately, it's going to be like kind of a classist thing in a way where How so? I, think, I think wealthy people are going to really care about privacy. They've always wanted a Swiss bank, right? So I think wealthy people are actually going to lead the charge here in certain ways because they're going to want financial privacy. Um, much like they always did with Swiss banks or whatever. And maybe I'm even talking about the ultra-wealthy here, but I think they're going to want communications privacy. They're going to want financial privacy. And you know what? There could be a dystopic realm where it costs a huge amount of money to be private in the future and where lower and middle-class people can't afford it. That would be terrible. So we need to prevent that from happening, which is why it's really neat to see projects like Bitcoin and Signal and Lightning that are like open source and accessible and used, usable by anybody. I think that's essential to keep pushing forward. Um, so we need to prevent that dystopia for sure. I mean, there, there's that New York Times piece by Jameson Lopp where, where he gets interviewed and it's like it cost him $30,000 to disappear from the American kind of like surveillance system. And like, that's not ideal. Like it should cost $3, you know, or whatever, or not cost anything. Um, but there's so much work that's got to go into that for the average person to have those kind of protections. It's interesting. Well, Alex, we appreciate you so much for coming down and sharing your story and engaging in some of these topics related to privacy, security, cryptocurrency, human rights. Based on your work at the Human Rights Foundation, Chief Strategy Officer there, Alex Gladstein, thank you for joining it's us. It's been a blast. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you